Hi, plant friends. Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. This is Simon Hill, your host and creator of plantproof.com, your one-stop shop for information on plant-based nutrition. The Plant Proof Podcast is a channel to create thought-provoking conversation with industry leaders, qualified professionals, athletes, and more to help us become more conscious and form healthier and more mindful habits. And now it's time to introduce today's special guest. This week on the Plant Proof Podcast, I was so, so fortunate to have the chance to catch up with Robbie Lockie, the co-founder of Plant Based News. It's it's pretty funny, actually. I, I bumped into Robbie at Vegan Nights in London uh, near Brick Lane. For those of you who know, it's a fabulous event. There's a number of vegan food businesses that are all within this same market area and it's it was absolutely pumping it was probably the busiest vegan market i've ever been to and had some delicious food anyway caught up with robbie quickly and and we said hey let's record a podcast tomorrow as we've been talking about it for months and i really wanted to share his story with you robbie was born in zimbabwe and that's where he you know, first entered this world of digital design and media and he ended up moving to London for certain reasons which he discusses in the podcast and in London he continued this career in design and digital media and communications and even worked with large companies like Getty Images and BMW and Jamie Oliver and these days Robbie's focused on, on being a co-founder and creative and campaign director at plant-based news and plant-based news is just such a phenomenal platform they they pump out the most amazing content on a daily basis and it's something that i personally have a look at every single day so guys i really hope you enjoy this podcast and get a look into the life of robbie Lockie. robbie Lockie, welcome to the plant proof podcast thanks for having me now, you are co-founder of Plant-Based News, which is you know one of, if not the largest media companies out there who are providing daily information on all things plant-based veganism globally. And, and you guys are doing such amazing, amazing things. And I really want to dive into how all that started and where you see everything going from, from here. But before we do that, I'd love to learn more about Robbie and and where you developed, you know, all of these passions for living a, a very conscious and, and peaceful style life. So take it, take us back. Did you, did you, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Zimbabwe, in Africa, born way back in 1979. Gives you an idea of my age. I grew up on a small farm. My two very young parents, and spent most of my childhood running around the mountains of the eastern highlands of Zimbabwe, playing in rivers and just really being, you know, quite kind of free person, really. Sort of towards my late teens, things started to go wrong in Zimbabwe. A lot of writing and police violence. And, you know, I was at college at the time and there were tear gas bombs coming through windows and it was a pretty scary time, really. A lot of unrest, fuel shortages, food shortages. And my parents thought, you know, probably why is if they get me out and I had 200 pounds in my pocket, clothes on my back, and they stuck me on a plane and little 19 year old country mouse (laughs) 
arrived in London absolutely terrified and un, you know, unsure of where I was and what I was doing. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my story in sort of 30 seconds. But I, I arrived here at 18, 18, 19, I think it was, yeah, and 1999. And my whole kind of life just began as I kind of explored the world of media. And I went from company to company getting involved in things like digital design, video production, and kind of, you know, meandered my way around the kind of digital media world. It was interesting, actually, because when I first left Zimbabwe, a lot of people said to me, you know, it's very competitive in England. You'll never succeed. You'll probably end up just stuck in a, in a dead end job or a bar job. And you won't, you know, without any qualifications or university degrees, you're, you're not going to make it. <laughs> and that didn't stop me. Uh, I came and I, I, I learned and taught myself web design and digital design and ended up working in some of the biggest agencies in the world and working on some of the biggest digital projects and websites in the world and, and managed to kind of you know, prove myself. So it's been quite a ride. When you, when you had left Zimbabwe, was that, you know, in your mind, was this a, a, a permanent move? Did, is it easy to get the visas and what were you thinking in terms of citizenship and all that sort of stuff at that stage? I wasn't actually thinking about any of that. I just wanted to get the hell away from all the violence and the kind of like fear that was running through us. Or we didn't know what was going to happen to the country, whether things were going to totally collapse or not. Um, I just wanted to get away. It was very hard leaving my family. I was only you know, 18 or 19 and just really struggled with the idea of being away from Africa because it was all I'd ever known. I'd never left the continent. My mother's family, my, my grandfather, he was born in London. So I had ancestral rights or an ancestral visa, which took six or seven years to actually acquire. But I had no plans of staying in London. I actually was just going to go there temporarily and until things settled down and then go home. However, 20 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of what you're doing now is very much focused around animals being more conscious, more mindful. Was, was that something that you were thinking about back then? When did you start as a human, you know, thinking that life's not just about humans, it's not just about me, there's, there's other things that we should be caring about? When did, when did that all start for you? I grew up on a farm, obviously, so I was surrounded by animals. I witnessed and have experienced the whole process of animals being used for food, for, for a transport. And obviously we had companion animals like cats, and dogs. I, had, um, I actually had a pet rat. And I always loved animals. They were always a big part of my life. But I didn't make the connection between animals that we loved and animals that we ate for food. There wasn't that correlation for me. Obviously, I cared about animals and I cared about their welfare, but I didn't have that connection. And then in my late teens, early 20s, I began to explore the spiritual world, the world of kind of Buddhism and just spirituality in general, and began to ask questions about the nature of reality and our our lives. My grandmother gave me loads of books to read about, you know, the nature of the universe. And my journey really began there, I would guess, is, is understanding my own place in the universe as a, an entity and a fragment of consciousness. And it's only really about six years ago that I made that connection, the vegan connection, that, you know, all sentient life, all conscious life is worthy of our respect. And that, you know, if we don't need to kill to survive, then why should we? And in terms of, I guess, your personal life and, you know, transitioning away from animal products, was it an, was that like an overnight thing or was that sort of six or seven years ago and you sort of slowly reading more and thinking more and you just phased it in slowly? Well, my journey began actually through health. When I was in my mid-20s, I started developing a lot of serious health problems, joint problems, 
lot of aches and pains, a lot of what felt like quite severe arthritic pain in my neck and my back, um, a lot of bloating and skin problems after a few years. And I just really wanted to find out what was wrong with me. I went from doctor to doctor. Nobody could figure it out. There was some suggested I might have ME or fibromyalgia, but there wasn't any sort of conclusive idea of what was wrong with me. It was so bad at some stages where I'd be out with friends and by 10 o'clock I'd have to come home and lie down with, in agony. Just my entire body just ached um, with this terrible pain. And I decided I had enough and I wanted to find out. I really wanted to get to the bottom of it myself. Just by chance, obviously, Netflix came onto the scene and, and with it, a huge, incredible plethora of, of films and documentaries on health and food and nutrition. Um, and my very first film I watched was Food Inc., which really opened my eyes to the monster that is the kind of modern Western food system and how fruits and vegetables, animals and everything are processed through this machine and how you know the food that we get on our plates really isn't what it once was. And that goes from everything to pesticides and herbicides and fungicides to the, the actual nutrient density of the foods due to the destruction of the soils. And from there, I went and watched Forks Over Knives, which then obviously talks, talks specifically about chronic disease. And then uh, Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead by Joe, who, mm. who's just an incredible, amazing man. And seeing him go through his journey and juice for 30 days made me think, you know, he'd had all this chronic illness and all it was on all these pills and was in so much pain, had all these physical problems. I thought, why the hell not? Let's try it. So I actually tried a seven day juice fast. And at the end of it, it was a friend's birthday party at a local pub and went to the pub. And for some reason I ordered a burger, <laughs> this big, fat, juicy, fatty, straight off the cleanse, salty burger. And I actually got a third of the way through it and I was almost sick. I thought, this is how am I, I, don't, I just can't eat this. And that really was the beginning of the kind of falling out of love with eating meat. And then shortly after that, I actually ended up seeing Earthlings, which was, I don't know if anyone's anyone listening has seen Earthlings, but it's, you know, it's a horrific experience. It's kind of like taking the red pill in the matrix and you suddenly realize, holy crap, you know, what have we been doing all this time? And you, the, the kind of veil is lifted. And you suddenly see uh, a reality you never really were aware of before. And, and that gave me a, a, lot of, a lot of stuff to think about. But just serendipitously, like three days later, my neighbor's cat was run over on our street. And I went outside to witness the animal dying on the street in front of me, this kind of giant pool of ruby red blood strewn across the street in front of me. And I went over to the animal and it was suffering. The lady who had run it over was stopped in her car with all her kids like two meters up the road from me screaming. All the kids were crying. She couldn't get out the car because she couldn't look. And I was like on the, on the ground looking at this cat and it was flapping around. It was dying. And I thought, you know, what, uh, what do I do? You know, and you're told, you know, if something's suffering, you should put it out of its misery. And I couldn't do it. And then, then that moment and all the stuff I'd seen and witnessed over the last few weeks, I thought, I suddenly had that realization. Mm. I, but I felt I had this weird religious experience, this, this spiritual experience where I felt I was the cat. I almost switched places with it for a second. It looked up at me. Its blood was my blood. You know, we've got, you know, we're the same. And in that moment, that was it. And after that, I never ever touched another piece of meat or animal product again. It's, a, it's amazing once you, I mean, so many people, not the same story, but a story around you know, watching a documentary or reading something that just starts to open the mind. And then from there, 
once the mind's open, there's a you know culmination of things that add up, which help to to really draw that connection. Which you were saying as a kid, you know, a lot of people can't draw the connection between domesticated pets and farmed ones. Okay, so you 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 decided then and there, that's it, no more animal products. How how did your body how did your body feel when you changed your diet? What what was your personal experience? You know, you had all of these aches and pains. Yeah, so I, it's crazy, but as soon as I started cutting milk and and meat and eggs out of my diet, my health started improving dramatically within a matter of weeks. I felt like a different person, a totally different person. I still have issues. I think intrinsically, I probably have some congenital issues that I've been born with, but I think is it... Dr. Esselstyn, I think who says, you know, genetics loads the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger. You know, we're all, we're imperfect beings. Our genes are laden with kind of genetic anomalies that can, you know, exhibit themselves in disease. But if we live a clean and healthy lifestyle and eat the way we should eat, you know, as mostly ape-like creatures, <laughs> we should have good health. So it improved dramatically. And, and this is why I'm so passionate about it, because obviously through my own personal experience, I've seen... I've seen such dramatic changes. Okay. Now, just jumping back into the the media side of things. So you you went you, you came to London, you worked for some some top media companies. What what was your role? What were you doing? What were you passionate about from a from a career point of view at that stage? So I started off as a designer. So I, I, I designed and created websites and my kind of whole career meandered around digital media. So building digital platforms for big brands. And my job went from kind of digital designer to UX designer, sometimes getting involved in SEO and a lot of the technical stuff. Um, And then also kind of diving a bit into branding and graphic design, kind of going around and around in circles for a while. And then eventually a few years ago, kind of moving up towards a creative director and then just being more in a leadership role and directing the design and the pathway of digital brands online. So yeah, it was a, a long experience. It was just 19 years of that, really. This, this will be my 20th year doing what I wow. do. Wow. Must have seen, I mean, the landscape's changed a lot as well, right? It has. When I first started back in Zimbabwe, when I was 18, 19, because I think before I left to come to England, I had spent two years working in a digital agency in Harare in Zimbabwe and learning the ropes way back. And I was working on some uh, online newspapers. Zimbabwe at the time was quite innovative when it came to digital media. This is a good sort of 20, 22 years ago. So yeah, so a lot of a lot has changed. The web has become more open and more free. Like design-wise, websites have become less, they've become more functional. They become more like apps where people go to, to use them to do something. And then obviously with the advent of video, it's allowed people to be more expressive. Um, and with things like HTML5, which allows more type typographic um, expansion and things to look more beautiful, because the web used to be quite ugly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and the plant based news, you know, as a business, how did this how did this start? How did this opportunity um, come up? So about two and a half, I think it was three years ago, um, I met a young man called Klaus Mitchell, and Klaus he had this idea of creating something that gave a bird's eye view over everything that was happening in the, in the vegan world. And he started a YouTube channel and Klaus would sit in his greenhouse and he'd 
present the news. Hi, I'm class of the greenhouse. <laughs> people loved it. And he'd invite other people on to read the news and just read stories about what was going on around, around the place. And class and I met at something called v, uh, Vegan Futures, which was a, a festival, which really brought a lot of people together in London, actually. And it was a driving force for a lot of great friendships. Damien, who you've had on previously, or will have on, he, he created it with his partner. Um, and they kind of, it was again, like a sort of mini TED talk slash vegan event where people came and speak, speaking and talking about food and health and fitness. Klaus and I met there. Uh, became friends. He helped me move into my house that I think a few weeks later, and we just became really, really close. And he said, you know, do you want to help me with this stuff? And I, I've been involved in working in social media as well for a good few years. I'm really passionate about social media. I you know, hadn't been vegan long and I was kind of really keen to you know, do something. So I helped him develop the Facebook page and help him sort of started working on the brand and what it was. And then I said, you know, we need a website and we need to start creating articles because we need to be able to share this information with a lot more people. Because with our own website, it would give us the ability to expand and reach people we can't necessarily reach on social media. And we were doing that and we're having loads of fun and it was great. You know, we, we're, both, we're both super passionate. This is our life. Like we, from the moment we get up in the morning to the moment we go to sleep. But Strangely and wonderfully, out of the blue, we got an email from Prince Khaled Awalid, who's this incredible young man from Saudi Arabia, who sent us an email and said, I love what you guys are doing. I'd love to help you. Wow. And we actually thought it was <laughs> junk mail. Yeah. You know how you get those emails from um, a Ghanaian prince saying, I've got 100 million Ghanaian dollars and I need you to transfer it for me. <laughs> and I almost didn't reply and I almost didn't look into it. And it was from him it was from, himself. From Khaled, yeah. Wow. And Did you try and verify the email? Were you like, okay, we need, we need to work out if well, this Yeah, if Khaled, if you're listening, he'll laugh at this because, you know, I, I did. I looked it up because I thought, you know, I was sitting there thinking this could be an opportunity you know, I'm going to just jump at it because normally I would have ignored those kind of emails because, you know, I've, everyone gets mm. strange emails from time to time. Because usually it's people going to call it. Usually it's people going to him to ask him for help. So you don't necessarily expect someone like him to reach out to you. And he, I looked him up and I looked at his website and Klaus was sitting next to me at the time. I literally grabbed Klaus's arm really tight. and He almost jumped out of his chair and I was like, oh my God. It is. Oh my God, this, there's, a, there's a guy, there's a guy. There's, and he was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Get your words out. And we looked him up and I was like, this is incredible. We sent him a message back and I wrote him a nice message back. And I said, wow, thank you so much. Like, it's great to hear from you and would love to chat sometime. And Khaled replied and he just said, you know, it's great, great. Thank you for responding. He just said, I'm so impressed that you, you, know, you got back to me. I, I wasn't ex- actually expecting you guys to get back to me. I was also especially impressed that you didn't ask for money. Colored so used to people just saying how much, yeah, and uh, we weren't even thinking about so this. Money. Is refreshing for him. We weren't even thinking about money. We were just thinking about like the fact that there's this vegan Saudi prince who's really, exposure that you can who's get. really like passionate about what yeah. we're doing, and we just felt so like honored and blown away that he'd even noticed us. <laughs> he said, "Like send me a proposal." And we were like, "Oh wow, okay." Us and I like stayed up till five a.m. working on a proposal. We didn't sleep. And we presented this proposal to him and he said, great, I'd love it. Let's do it. And he, he uh, bought a share in our company. So at that stage, was 
was, um, you know, what class was originally doing and what you, when you set up the Facebook page, was it called plant-based news? Yeah, it was called plant-based news, but it was, it was primarily focused on YouTube and creating video content for YouTube. That's what it was known as. Um, we had stuff on Facebook and we had a pretty small Instagram that was cast as putting news through, but it wasn't as concentrated as it is now. And and in this proposal to Calad, what was in there? What did what did you sort of put forward? Well, we gave him three options. We were kind of you know middle, lower middle, and upper like shoot for the stars kind of thing, you know. And and it was really about a team building a team and saying, you know, the bottom would be just Klaus and I working away. The middle would be us with a, a few other people, and then the top one would be this dream team of all these different people and a production team and a studio and all that kind of stuff. So we both because we both had big visions for it. I've always wanted to create a media platform of some sort to tell stories. And actually, before I started Plant-Based News with Klaus, I created something called People of London, which is like Humans of New York, which is about you know telling stories about people who are changing the world with a focus, obviously, on London. And there's video stories as well. So it's something I've always wanted to do. But now that I was vegan, I thought, well, here's an opportunity. A perfect fit. Yeah. To tell people's stories and, and explain the change in the world through the lens of our movement. And when, when Khaled said, uh, I want to help, let's do it. Klaus and I were like, let's do it. Let's partner. Let's build the company. We registered the company, set all the accounts up and just put that fuel in that rocket and off it went. <laughs> and when, when, what year was that? That was two years ago, I think. So officially we're, as a company, we're about two years old. And you know, currently now, where are you guys sort of working out of? How many staff do you have? This So Klaus and I are co-directors and co-owners, along with obviously Coloured. And we have two full-time staff. So Maria and Emily, who write on the website. Maria is the head of written content. And Emily is a digital writer. So they are kind of leading up the website when it comes to written content. And we have loads of other people who help us, from contributors in graphics and media and design to SEO, to all kinds of different things. So, yeah. And, and can I, I work between all of it, I guess. So I'm kind of using my skills in production and media management, branding, um, and the tech side of things to kind of like pull it all together. <laughs> and in terms of, I guess, generating the, the content, mm-hmm. you, because you, you guys are sort of, you're getting out there a lot of the time and, and creating content, you know, first sync type content, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're also you know, breaking news and yeah. things like that. Have you, have you seen a change in the amount of the amount of news and the amount of people searching certain things on the website? Like what, tell, what's the data showing? Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, when we first, so before Kylo came on board and we were just, we just got the website going, Klaus and I together, you know, we were getting two, 3,000 unique visitors a month, maybe if we're lucky. We're almost at a million uniques a month now. Wow. And it's just exploded because people are looking for this information. You know, the, the searches for vegan-related stuff on, on Google has increased like 400%. People are seeing the word vegan in the media. They're seeing it in the supermarkets. They're seeing it in, on television. More and more and more people are talking about it. And interestingly, vegan has gone from being a dirty word, a scary word, to being something quite cool and, and hip and trendy. Everyone's talking about going vegan. And what does that mean? Um, I think people are becoming, as we normalize it, hashtag new normal, <laughs> where we're making it less threatening. If we show, when we're showing people that all kinds of people are vegan, we're not all crock wearing, tree hugging, purist type, kombucha drinking, mm. 
hipsters. <laughs> Some of us are. <laughs> so, and in terms of the content, and you've got a very diverse range of content on there. It can be anything from perhaps a business that is changing what they're offering, or it mm. can be a celebrity who has adopted a vegan lifestyle, or it can be something around the animal agricultural agriculture industry. What what type of content, if you sort of looked at the categories, gets the most attraction, the most searches? The best and most engaging content is celebrity content. And that's simple psychology. People see a face they recognize and they click into it. And I think that's just the way humans are built. When we see we are, we are intrinsically and evolutionarily attuned to being drawn to things we recognize. And when we see a face, we know we want to find out more about it. And that is the most popular content when celebrities are cutting out meat or when celebrities are launching vegan brands, that always brings in the most amount of traffic. That's probably because it has a sort of halo effect. So it attracts a lot of non-vegans as well. Um, and that's great for us because it draws people into the conversation and then they start to learn more about a bit like what happened with me. It was health and then it was the environmental stuff and then it was the animal stuff. And you know, we try and create a broad scope of information. So we start with celebrity stuff, then it's often health and fitness and nutrition. Then it's kind of brands and products and launches. And then it's kind of the environment. Unfortunately, the environmental stuff isn't sexy and people don't necessarily engage with it, but it is there and, and yeah. it is a part of the picture. I find, um, you know, unless, I mean, there are people certainly who do have a real passion for the environment, but if you're coming in to sort of the veganism world from another angle, the environmental stuff it, it may not be front of mind at the start, but, it, you know, once they're a little bit down the journey and then they start to read in it, it's like that, okay, I can't go back now. Like it's that extra factor. Okay, so the news that you're uploading now, how do you see it changing? What what do you see the the next couple of years looking like for plant-based news and um, I guess monitoring the trends as well in terms of the amount of traffic? Mm-hmm. What are you envisaging? I think we're going to see a doubling and a tripling of this content just because as more companies and more people get involved with this lifestyle, I think we're going to just see things changing rapidly. I think with the advent of things like cellular agriculture, where we're going to start seeing an end to animal agriculture, we're going to just see more and more people talking about how they can live a more ethical life. It's just happening everywhere. I mean, look at brands like Tesla who had vegan as an option and now all their cars are hundred percent vegan. So I just think more companies are, you could say jumping on the bandwagon, but it's being driven by consumer demand. Like more and more people are looking for alternatives. You know, more and more young people are cutting leather out of their fashion requirements. And I just think, yeah, it's just going to keep on exploding. You mentioned cellular um, agriculture. Have you, have you done a lot of reading into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you shed some light for some of the listeners if they're yeah. sort of unfamiliar with that term and, you know, how, how that will affect factory farming. So cellular agriculture is a process by which you extract cells from any animal, including human, if you wanted to, <laughs> and you can grow flesh and that, that could be anything. Usually it's mus- muscular tissue and, you know, you could grow a chicken breast, a salmon steak, a piece of, you know, duck, duck breast, anything. Ultimately the technology is essentially very simple and the way it functions it's just like kind of growing a mass of cells, which then you kind of build on a framework and, and then you can, you can grow any kind of tissue. 
Currently, it's not vegan because a lot of the products require something called bovine fetal serum, which is the serum in which animal fetuses grow within. Um, but there are organizations like, I think it's in Memphis Meats, I think, who are working on a plant-based alternative. So there are people out there who are really working hard to try and make something like this 100% cruelty-free. Because, you know, really with this kind of thing, all you need is a few cells from an animal which isn't harming the animal. It doesn't hurt the animal. It's a small biopsy. And then you can continue to replicate those cells over and over and over again and grow as much flesh as you wish. I see a future where people might have machines in their own home and they'll get a sachet in the post of freeze-dried cells, maybe pop it into the machine. And by the end of the week, you have a whole bunch of steaks yeah. <laughs> which you can then fry up or use as, as protein for flavor or to feed your companion animals, your, like your cats. Is that the future you think of, of feeding the, the billions of people in this world? It depends on who you talk to. I think that if we can get this technology to function well and we could get farmers to switch from farming animals to farming cells, then you know people could set up labs on their farms and essentially move away from farming animals. You know, farming animals is cruel, it's dirty, it's environmentally destructive. It's a poor use of resources. Yeah, and it's it's inefficient. You know, I think for every hundred grams of grain, you can only extract 10 grams of animal protein. So it's, you know, it's inefficient. And I think it is the future because it's, it is cleaner. You know, it's called clean meat as well for a reason. There's no antibiotics. There's no pesticides. It's made by humans in a clean and sterile environment. Whereas in your animal agriculture, if you've ever been to a factory farm and you see how these poor beings suffer, you know, why would you choose that? If you can choose something that was, that was free of all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so People are squeamish about it because they think, oh, Franken-meat, Frankensteinian meat. It's not. It's just meat. Animal cells and plant cells are not that different. They obviously have their differences, but uh, fundamentally, cells are cells. Living cells are very intrinsically the same. And if we can learn to be able to manipulate them and grow them, we're not playing God. We're growing things just like we grow tomatoes, or cabbages, oranges. You know, We're not playing God when we plant seeds in the ground. Just mastering Without cruelty, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and from the sounds of it, is that something that you would eat? You you said before it, depending on how the cells are grown, it can or cannot be classified as vegan. Is that right? So if it's used as bovine fetal serum, something had to die for that to grow. Yep, and and bovine fetal serum is sold at something like six hundred dollars a milliliter, so it's very it's a very valuable liquid. So animals, so often cows that are slaughtered pregnant the bovine fetal serum is taken from them and then used in this process. So currently it's not a cruelty-free option, but it's still in that process of, of change. And if it can be perfected and a plant-based alternative of this liquid can be created, it will save the lives of billions of billions of animals and the suffering of billions of sentient beings that are completely unnecessary. So, Even though the, the stem cell has come from an animal, and that's a, that's a, there's no harm there in terms of the biopsy yeah would you, you don't have to keep taking yeah it, right? you don't have to keep you can it just you keep keep multiply it. yeah but like yeast you just keep on keep multiplying it out is would you classify that form of meat as vegan veganism by its definition is about exploitation and suffering if there's no suffering if an animal's not being exploited and, and it's suffering then it is technically vegan a lot of vegans won't eat it and probably wouldn't eat it because they don't see the need. We can live um, like our monkey and ape cousins on fruits, nuts, seeds, vegetables, and, and, and thrive. But I think there's always going to be people who are going to want to eat meat 
And there are always animals that were that are in our care. They're going to need to eat meat, the cats and big, you know, big cats and things. So I think it's always going to be part of the picture. I won't personally eat it only because I know and, and have studied plant-based nutrition. And I know that consuming large quantities of animal protein is damaging to our bodies. It may taste great and maybe bursting with flavor when we cook it, but it's ultimately not the best thing for optimum health. <laughs> and if someone wanted to, to look up, you know, some of the main players, the main companies that are looking at this clean meat, what, what are some of those called? There's Memphis Meats. There's, as it, Finless. There's a company called, I think it's called Happy, Happy Days, Happy something. I'm trying to remember the name. They are, they're working on developing a, an alternative to milk, but it'll be real milk. So it'll be using this technology to, to create milk and casein, because casein is the protein that exists within dairy that gives cheese its lovely stringiness, but also makes it highly addictive. When you drink milk and you eat cheese, you get that casomorphine hit in your gut, don't you? Which makes it really hard for people to, to quit. So you can synthesize that and you can create that. So there's actually lots of companies that are trying to make animal products, including things like leather as well, growing. You can theoretically grow skin the same way you could grow any kind of tissue and, and make leather from you know, make leather for clothing and bags that didn't come from it. Well, didn't come, wasn't ripped off an animal's body. What What else are you seeing? Sort of, so that's clean meat. What are the other areas where you're seeing, you know, great innovation from a business point of view, whether it's in the UK or globally, you know, some of the news that you've covered, what What else are you, are you seeing and see a great opportunity for businesses out there to have a look at? It's It's alternatives. People have an emotional and cultural connection with food. And if we can find ways in which we can allow people to replicate that experience and that taste without having to sacrifice the experience, because when we go vegan, we are, we often find ourselves excluded from certain events, things like Christmas and birthdays, events where there's large groups of people consuming and eating animals and animal products. And we often feel like an outsider and it makes us feel quite isolated. And I think that if we can find a way in which we can bring families and friends together and we can all enjoy the same food that we've always eaten, but it just doesn't come from animals. You know, things like bacon and eggs and there's loads of, it's, for me, the biggest thing is food innovation and food technology. I'd prefer if it was all made from plants because I think it's going to be healthier for people. But, you know, there are companies, especially in the UK, that are jumping on this bandwagon. We've got Wicked Kitchen here, led up by Derek Sano, who's the head of plant-based innovation at Tesco. And they've, produced 20 plus different products that are not overtly labeled vegan, but they're focused on a delicious plant-based product and they're flying off the shelves. People are really, really loving them. And I think, you know, you don't have to be vegan to eat this food. That's the point. People don't have to be vegan to eat vegan food. And I think that's the thing, like the whole vegan food revolution, especially here in the UK is actually not being driven by vegans. It's being driven by people who want to eat less meat. And the, the supermarkets and the restaurants are waking up to this. They're realizing that people want to be healthier. They want to slash their carbon footprint and they're providing these alternatives. I, th- I think I saw you two nights ago at Vegan Nights in, in Shoreditch or where, where is that? In Brick Lane. Brick Lane. And I don't know the statistics on, on the number of vegans and non-vegans there, but the food there, was that's a prime example of food just being so delicious. You didn't need to be vegan to go to that event. Yeah, it's it's uh, incredible. I think when it first started, it had a few hundred people turn up and it's like thousand plus people milling around, drinking and dancing and eating and hanging out together. And it's 
you know, because a lot of like vegan events over the decades have always felt very kind of country fair. <laughs> no offense to the country. <laughs> I, I'm from the country, but it kind of, it, it, it had that kind of hippie vibe, you know, and, you know, nothing wrong with being hippie, but I think it's not something that necessarily appeals to everyone. And I think when you normalize something like veganism, it makes you realize that you don't have to be a certain way to be part of this way of being. You can be anyone, come as who you are, dress how you want, you know, be into whatever music you want to be into, whatever religion, whatever culture, whatever political leaning you are, come and join the party. I don't know if you know, but I'm a huge cookie addict. And they had, there's some cookies there. I think they're called Hello Yum. Mm -hmm. Oh God, they were good. I had like cookie sandwich with, with vegan ice cream in the middle. It was, it was incredible. So good. <laughs> okay. So we've slightly digressed away from plant-based news and every, every, everything that you're doing with your team, you got some investment from Khaled, you've set up an amazing team and, and I'm sure most of the listeners have seen plant-based news, but if you haven't jumped over, there is an enormous amount of content that's going up daily, weekly from videos to articles, there's social media content, and I'll have all of the links in the show notes. But what I'm interested in finding out more about, Robbie, is how you're going to scale and fund the business essentially from here. Like how big do you want it to get to? Um, we want to build like an international media platform, entertainment platform, but gets this message out in all the ways possible. We want to be like BuzzFeed, big and diverse. And the ways we're funding it will be obviously primarily through advertising, through the website, through YouTube, but also kind of premium content as well. So if you check out plantbasednews.org forward slash insiders, we've got something which is a pay-per-view platform where you can pay $5 a month, just the price of a sandwich, and you can get all this premium content. And in there, we're going to fill it with TV shows, like show-like content, behind the scenes videos, documentaries that will kind of be exclusively released through PB and Insiders, recipes, cooking shows, all kinds of cool stuff. And then events as well. We're probably going to be looking at doing some events fairly soon, some screenings of films and documentaries kind of exclusive for films, you know, in the real world. So whether it's Sydney, London, New York, and then obviously some digital products and digital downloads, which we probably will do through, through partnerships with other brands. And then finally, probably branded collaborations. So Companies have already started approaching us where we create content for them with our creative skills, our production skills, and either place it on our platform or, or obviously deliver it to them because we understand the kind of plant-based slash ethical message. We can, we can craft things fairly quickly. So that's the plan. What I think is really cool about this is going back to what we were talking about before in terms of there are so many different types of vegans now and, you know, historically it might have been a little more just, you know, hippies and mm -hmm. purist types that, you know, sort of held the notion that making money was not important and shouldn't be, you know, the material side of things shouldn't be part of it. But, you know, I was speaking with Damien um, from Vevolution and I think this new wave of thinking and, and, being creative and, and understanding that, well, it's okay to set up a business that makes money as long as it is based around positive change mm -hmm. is really what we need to take the message and everything to a much larger scale. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing where plant-based news goes from here. Thank you. Now, I know that you also have a passion for campaigning 
and we've spoken um, just before about a particular campaign that you came up with yourself and that was a, a poster that had been put up by a meat company in UK, mm-hmm. which was Gourmet Burger Gourmet Kitchen. Gourmet Burger Kitchen, yeah. Yeah, so they, they uh, I'll let you tell the story, but they, they put up a poster that was advertising their meats mm-hmm. and you came back at them with your own, your take on it and which led to the posters being taken down. Can you, can you take us through that story first mm-hmm. and then sort of a little bit more detail into campaigning in general and what your advice is if someone else listening, mm-hmm. you know, wants to do something? So good three years, two and a half, three years ago now, Gourmet Burger Kitchen decided in their infinite wisdom to have a bit of fun and take a pop at vegans and vegetarians even though we make up probably a third of their customer base. And they put out posters on the London Tube network that made fun of us in a way that was quite crass. Um, Some people thought it was funny. And, you know, objectively, if you look at it, it it's quite amusing. But ultimately, like making fun of people's dietary choices, I think, isn't really the best way to win customers. And the posters featured um, a young calf sitting on a black background. And it said, they eat grass so you don't have to. And obviously the idea is that is, you know, we chop them up and they eat the grass, we chop them up into pieces and turn them into burgers. They also then had other posters all over the tube network, which said, remember the last time you were a vegetarian and with a receipt of a beef burger underneath, which just showed how, you know, it was really hard to resist the beef burger. And then you ended up, you know, ditching your vegetarianism for the beef burger. And I just, I thought it was I just hated them. I thought, I'm not going to just sit here and not say something. So I looked at their logo and I thought, Gourmet Burger Kitchen, Gourmet Burger Kitchen, Gourmet Murder Kitchen. And then I wrote a poster. I made a poster because I'm a graphic designer. I made a poster with a young cow in a field. And it said, very simply, we kill them so you don't have to. And I redid the logo to make it look exactly the same. And it said, Gourmet Murder Kitchen, normalizing carnism since 1999. And I put it out onto the internet put it into all the Facebook groups and it took off. And I think people actually thought it was a real poster. They thought that that poster is called, it's called brandalism, like, like vandalism or brand hacking um, or culture jamming is another term where you, you make and mimic a brand's poster campaign or brand campaign and put it out into the world to sort of like interrupt the message and get people talking. I then wrote an article uh, on a popular environmental blog called Eco Hustler about the whole thing. And how I thought it was just crass and outrageous that this company thought that they could do this. If they did it about Jewish people eating pork, you know, there would be international outcry. Why is it okay to make fun of vegans and vegetarians? It's still a belief system. And it just took off. The hashtag started trending on Twitter worldwide. And then it was trending on Facebook as well. Everyone was talking about it. And it was everywhere. And there were articles written by it in almost all major newspapers um, talking about the campaign and more people just piled on top of it. And four days later, they put a public apology out and removed the posters. They they didn't contact you directly? No, but they, t- they took the posters down and they issued a really asinine apology saying, oh, we were just having a bit of fun. It was our carnivore spirit coming out. Um, and I, yeah, we all chuckled and, and everyone moved on, but it was quite fun having to do that. And campaigning, you know, is, is such an important thing and anyone can do it. And the point is, is that campaigning is a skill that you can learn. You can teach yourself loads of books on it online and there's loads of resources online. A few good few years ago, I did a course called Campaign Bootcamp, 
which was a, a year-long course teaching you the fundamentals of campaigning. And that's everything from petitioning to mobilizing audiences and just building your idea of what you want to achieve around a goal. And the goal for me was get them to remove the posters. And I set my sights on that. And my tactics were to sort of shame them into doing it. And they, and they did. And if, if someone listening, you know, wants to look into campaigning a little, in a little bit more detail, what are some of your, I guess, top tips or where can they go for more information? I think when it comes to campaigning, you need to um, figure out who your target is and your, your goal mustn't be too broad. So for example, stop all animal cruelty. That's way too broad. And it doesn't really, it's, it's not a, it's not a, an effective way of, creating change. If you want to campaign about something, you need to focus in, zone in on an issue. So for example, if there's a, a slaughterhouse near you and you know that animals are being abused in there, for example, they're supposed to be stunned and they're not being stunned, you can go, you, you know, you could potentially get some undercover footage and zone in on that problem and try and get the place shut down because you, you know, and create after usually shaming people in that sense, in that kind of business is a good way of publicly shaming. So, so, so ex- exposing them through a particular issue. So like if, you know, this business this is suggesting they're doing things one way and you can prove they're doing things another way, that's a really good way to do it. Rather than just saying, oh, ban all cruelty in my county, you want to find companies and organizations that are actually doing it and kind of put their name up on a board and show, show it yourself. And the most important thing about campaigning though, I must say, is actually building your allies and your support. It's very hard doing the so these sort of things on your own, you need to get people together, get a Facebook group together, get a, you know, get meet, get a meetup going. Or so you can share it. Yeah. Amplify the message. Yeah. That's the most important thing of campaigning. If you're really passionate about something, find other people who care about it as well and get together and start thinking of some, some strategies. And there was some online resources or links. That- yeah. So campaign bootcamp is a brilliant resource and they have loads of great free stuff online. And I, there's loads of books and PDFs, which I'll, I'll get you to link in the, in the show notes. Okay, perfect. And I've got a few questions from guys on social media who knew you were coming on the show and, and want to know a few little interesting things about you. First question, do you have any pets? I have a cat. And what's the cat's name? Princess Nala. Princess Nala. <laughs> and how old's, how old's Princess Nala? She's seven. Seven. Yeah. And if you have... One last day on this planet, what would your breakfast be? My last day on my breakfast. Well, my breakfast is always pretty much the same. I always have a giant bowl of, of oatmeal with loads of fruit and um, maple syrup. And I usually add like something sweet, like like uh, cacao nibs or something like that. Chocolate. Pretty similar to what I do, actually. Yeah. I like to keep breakfast quite simple. Usually when I eat in the morning, um, I can't actually handle it too much food. But... Uh, yeah, that's usually my breakfast. Or maybe something savory, like loads of avocado with some hummus and loads of tomatoes with black pepper and chili, smoked chili, chipotle chili flakes. Yeah, that's what I love to eat. And final question before I let you go. It's a beautiful, sunny uh, Sunday here in... No, Saturday. Saturday. Saturday in London. Your top two or three places in London to go and enjoy a meal with friends? I guess my top two places are probably Mildred's in Dalston. It's a beautiful restaurant with loads of amazing vegan food. And Vantra, which is in central London, they do wonderful steamed, raw and fermented foods, all vegan, all organic, no oil, full of flavor, incredible like red chickpea curries and 
raw cacao desserts and wonderful teas and kombucha. And they're a family business. They're actually the oldest vegan restaurant in, in London, if not the UK, wow. running for almost 25 years. And they're really wonderful people. And whenever I go there, I feel like I'm in their living room, in their home, and they make me feel very welcome. So, so cool. I'll definitely have to check that one out. Yeah. It's been really great having you on the show. It's been a pleasure, Robbie. And, um, you know, I hope I can get you back on the show in, in the next year or two and we can celebrate all of the amazing progress that Plant Based News has made. I can see you're super, super passionate and authentic. And yeah, I'm just, you know, really glad to have met you. I'm inspired by you and keep up the great work. You're making a huge difference globally. Thank you very much. And that's this week's episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Connect with myself and the Plant Proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof.